series through the uh, rather obscure and cryptic book of Ecclesiastes that we are calling Life Worth Living. This book serves, I think, as an appropriate and fitting precursor to the Advent season that we will enter into roughly uh, six or seven weeks from now, and as a perfect way to wrap up or bring to a close ordinary time, which is the liturgical season that we find ourselves in now and half of the year. And so um, my aim for today in this teaching and in this talk and time together will be to provide a basic introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes, as well as to make a couple of observations and ask three questions at the very end for you to consider, to ponder, and to think about. Uh, And that throughout the series will make the title Life Worth Living much more tangible. We also have a wonderful Ecclesiastes-themed art gallery in the lobby. I don't know if you noticed it or not. Um, Mary Beth Jones put that together, and it is wonderful. So take time after our gathering to allow that to be a part of the formation um, of this teaching series. Now, as we journey together today, I I do have for you a couple of different things. I've got um, some Arcade Fire for you at some point. Um, I've got some Nietzsche for you at some point. I I have some C.S. Lewis for you at some point, and a famous expressionist piece of art at some point as well, and hopefully a couple of subtle, off-the-cuff jokes that makes this uh, seemingly heavy book a little bit lighter. So that's kind of uh, my aim and my hope for us today, given the kind of ominous nature of the book of Ecclesiastes, though I think the feeling of heaviness is rather ironic, given the writer's aim, given the writer's pursuit, producing this paradox or puzzle or enigma throughout the book. Somehow, life is hard and heavy, but also fleeting and granular at the same time. Somehow those two aspects of life fit together as a paradox. M. Scott Peck in his famous book, The Road Less Traveled, opens by saying life is difficult. And in some ways, this book looks at the difficulties of life, the heaviness of life, how hard life is, but also how granular and fleeting it is at the same time. Now, disclaimer for all of us, this book is deeply philosophical, yet also acutely relevant for our time here in the modern era. It has been called by some the most contemporary book of the entire library of 
the scriptures, and you will see why as we dive into it. I also think, to be honest, and I don't do this very frequently, but it's a great teaching series to invite some of your friends who are wrestling with existential questions, wrestling with doubt, wrestling with the the nature of God, and so forth. It's a great opportunity for you to invite some of those folks. Um, But let's jump in. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're just going to read the first three verses. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We recognize that you are among us and in faith believe that you are transforming us. God, I pray that we have encounter today. I pray for conviction, for reflection. And I pray, Lord God, that through this obscure book that you would reveal yourself in a fresh light today and over the next few weeks. Come, fill us up afresh, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The book of Ecclesiastes was written at least 450 years before Jesus. At least. Though rabbinic tradition holds that it was written around 950 years before Jesus. This all, of course, depends on authorship of the book, who in fact wrote Ecclesiastes. Now, many believe that Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon of Israel, the son of the famous giant slayer, King David. Though Solomon's name isn't mentioned anywhere throughout the 12 chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, but much of the biographical sketch of the book matches the life script of King Solomon. Now, what we do know is that there is the writer of the book, and then there is the teacher inside of the book. The writer uses the teacher to frame out the content and structure of the book. Has anyone ever done a deep dive into Ecclesiastes before? It is a rather daunting. You got Revelation, you got Ecclesiastes, and everyone stays away. It's a daunting book. That's why no hands went up hardly at all. The very first verse in Ecclesiastes says the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, Solomon, as I mentioned, was the son of David. So it could be King Solomon. Or it could be another king in the line of David. Or it could be a teacher with a Solomon-like persona. Years later, writing this book. We don't know, in fact, but it seems very plausible that it was, in fact, King Solomon. Now, the word teacher is koalet in Hebrew, and it means someone who gathers an assembly to instruct. That's what the word koalet means, to instruct or to teach a gathering of people. Ecclesiastes is actually the Greek equivalent 
the Greek equivalent. And it's related, related to this word uh, ekklesia that we get the idea of church from, or a gathering, an assembly. So you see the connection there. Ecclesiastes will be a teacher or a preacher or someone who instructs an assembly. Ecclesia would be the actual gathering itself. And the author of Ecclesiastes introduces the book and he concludes the book, but the voice of the teacher gets the middle majority. So we're dealing with two different individuals, the actual writer of the book and the teacher within the book. And the author introduces briefly and then concludes at the very end. But the majority of this book will be coming from the voice of the coalette or the teacher or the preacher or the philosopher. Now, Ecclesiastes is not narrative or historical in the traditional sense as it pertains to literature. That's one of the reasons why it's actually challenging for us to navigate, because it is more or less like musings and or reflections about life. To me, it feels like uh, three men sitting on a back porch, smoking cigars, having a conversation on a Friday night about life. For some of you, that's a deeply relevant analogy. You know who you are. It also reminds me of the barbershop culture. Sitting around talking about life, making all these random statements or giving theories about how life works. Or at a salon, who knows, you know, women sitting around talking about celebrities, culture, life, sharing your opinions about politics, about your husband, about kids, about parenting, about whatever it is. That's, that's more or less the feel of Ecclesiastes, musings about life, reflections about life, rather than just this linear historical narrative. It actually fits inside of what is referred to across the scriptures as wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. It fits in this category alongside three other books, two in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. The two in the Old Testament are Job and Proverbs. And in the New Testament, the book of James. So when you talk about wisdom literature throughout the scriptures, you have Proverbs, you have Job, you have Ecclesiastes, and you have James. So that's kind of the aim of the literature, because one of the most important questions as we study the scriptures, as we look at the text, is to ask, what type of literary genre am I reading? If you build your theology off of Psalms or Lamentations, it's going to be a defunct theology, because we don't always read it with the proper lens. We do the same thing with other texts as well. But we have to recognize that the aim and the type of literature is wisdom. Now, throughout the 12 chapters, there are three main divisions to kind of help you understand it at a high level. The first two chapters are the teacher's search for meaning in life. The search for meaning in life. Chapters 3 through 6 are the teacher's observations from life and this pursuit that he has gone on. He makes certain observations and reflections. And then uh, chapters 7 through 12 focus on the teacher's counsel for life or his advice after doing all of the things and going on the search. And this book is a meandering 
psychosocial case study on the human experience that feels and will, will feel to you rather erratic and obscure and chaotic. But somehow, it all ends with a simple, seemingly anticlimactic, but brilliant conclusion in chapter 12. And I'm not going to give it away just yet. In fact, let me just also say this. As a pastor of the scriptures, as a teacher, as a, a, a communicator, I'm supposed to preach the gospel every single week. All my Reformed friends are like, you got to preach the gospel every single Sunday. Uh, and I agree with that, 100%. But today, you're not going to get the gospel. Just so you know. I'm going to leave you at the edge of a cliff. So, at least you know where we're going. Okay. Very good. Despite the complexity in this book, there are certain words and phrases that occur over and over and over again, driving home the author's points and his thesis. And they find themselves in these first three verses. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Seems as though... He has a point to be made. Some translations say vanity of vanities. The Hebrew word that's being translated here for meaningless or for vanity is the word hevel. Can you say that? Hevel. Great. And this word hevel uh, will appear roughly 30 plus times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. However, hevel or hevel doesn't so much mean purposeless or worthless or even meaningless, but rather means elusive, ephemeral, temporal, or evanescent. Do we have any fans of the rock band Evanescence here in the house? Bring me back to life. 2003, 20 years ago, that record came out. And that album is a perfect companion, as will be my reference to Arcade Fire here in a second, to the book of Ecclesiastes. All right? It means temporal, fleeting, ephemeral, or elusive. The word uh, hevel actually means, more literally, mist, vapor, or smoke. Mist, vapor, or smoke. But it sometimes, throughout the Old Testament, is translated as futility, vanity, or my favorite, and often, worthless idols. Worthless idols. And this phrase, meaningless, utterly meaningless, will bracket the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless. Meaningless. Everything is Meaningless. Though I think Nia says it much better than I do. Uh, the Old Testament scholar John Goldingay says the Old Testament applies the words to images of a God who has no real power. To plans that lead nowhere and to promises that don't get fulfilled. But half the occurrences of the word come in Ecclesiastes where it describes, and these are the different uh, components of the whole book in terms of topics at hand, pleasure, 
achievement, work, wealth, politics, and the general randomness of the way life works. Now, the word picture that the writer gives of the uh, hevel of life is chasing after the wind. Over 40 times, to be exact, in this book is this phrase used, chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes 1.14 says this, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are hevel, meaningless, vanity, elusive, ephemeral, futile, a chasing after the wind. The nature of Hevel is something that is visible but without substance. We grab at it, but it slips through our hands time and time again. We think we have it. We finally feel as though we have arrived and have it in our grasp, but then it's gone. It's Hevel. It's no coincidence that to grasp at emptiness produces emptiness. To grasp at emptiness produces emptiness. Hevel, meaningless, futile. Four things in particular that we often grab at as articulated both by the writer and thousands and thousands of years later where we find ourselves now in 2023 in modern America. Pleasure, profit, performance, and power. You gotta love a pastor's alliteration. You clown me, but you will remember it. Pleasure, profit, performance, and power. Fleeting. Futile, elusive, ephemeral, evanescent, hevel. It all will fade away. And I would ask you today, which of these four do you find yourself constantly grabbing at? Constantly reaching for? Is it pleasure? Bodily satisfaction? Is it profit and the making of money? Is it performance and achievement so others can clap their hands and say, well done? Or is it for authority and power, leadership? Which of these four do you find yourself reaching at? One person puts it this way. Human history is a beach full of sandcastles. There for a moment and soon washed away. Have you ever seen one of those sandcastle competitions on the beach? And you're like, first of all, (laughs) The artistic ability to manipulate sand in that way, I am blown away. But here is what's tragic. Once high tide comes, the sand castle goes with the tide. Back to a flat beach. Human history, your history, my history, our history is a beach full of sand castles. older generations forgotten, and you and I will be forgotten one day as well. I heard a story this past week of um, students that were in Sacramento, California. They went to go visit the courthouse with their class, and they had all of these pictures of different governors from California. 
two of which were former movie stars. The one they looked at was a picture of a very buff, strong man. And uh, the teacher said, do you guys, do you know who that is? None of them knew. And then the picture spoke and said, I'll be back. (laughs) I'm kidding. That's not what happened. Come and go. Come and go. Ask a young person about an artist that was at the top of the charts in the 70s. They won't know who they are. Or an athlete that dominated in the 1950s. They won't know who they are. Or an artist from the Baroque period who was amazing. You don't know who they are. They will fade at some point. Hevel. A beach full of sandcastles. There for a moment and soon washed away. I hope you're encouraged this morning. (laughs) Throughout October, all throughout this month, tens of thousands of people will hit the Blue Ridge Parkway as the 469-mile stretch of winding road unveils a natural painting of the colors of fall. It's beautiful. Leaves in shades of yellow, red, and orange. Canopy, the Blue Ridge Mountains. But it is the colors of change, the colors of time, the colors of Hevel, and the colors even of death. As quickly as the leaves become red, yellow, and orange is just as quick as they will become dead and brown. This is the picture of Hevel. Beauty in some miraculous way, but dying, death, futile, and fading away. The annual cycle, the annual rhythm. Days come, days go. You go to bed tonight, you get up to go to work tomorrow, and you do it all over again the next day. The writer calls this life under the sun. He calls this Life under the sun. 126 times this phrase of under the sun is used. And it connotes this idea of life within time. If you ever spend a a moment thinking about the nature of time, it can produce some um, visceral responses in your body. And you start thinking about time. And he uses this picture of under the sun as a way to communicate life within time or that which we can observe. The universe, that which is within the capacities of human knowledge, reason, rationality, and scientific testing. Under the sun. But it comes and goes, the annual cycle. You know, we think often that we have a grip on life. We think that we have some sort of control, especially in the modern moment. But the teacher laughs in your face. (laughs) Forcing us to come face to face with such an illusion. We are just an arbitrary biogenetic piece within this vicious cycle. The harsh reality, friends and family today, isn't that we lost control. It's that we never had control in the first place. 
birth, life, and death. It's life under the sun. We chase after the illusion of control. So the writer asks a question, an important question for us, a question of motivation and aim. He says, what do people gain? What do you gain? What do I gain? What do we gain from all of our labors and all of our toil under the sun? What does it profit you? Sounds a lot like a question that Jesus actually answers later on in the New Testament. What does it profit you? What is there to achieve when it all is fleeting and you will soon come, to face, come face to face with the harsh reality of death itself? What is there to achieve? What motivates you? What drives you when you know it will be totally gone and forgotten? Are you tired? Are you weary today? We got eight-year-olds that say, that say they're tired. High school kids exhausted. And we all are tired, exhausted, busy in the rat race of life under the sun. And what are you gaining, by the way? What are you achieving? What are you profiting? Now, the idea of labor obviously means to work with our hands. But the word for toil, or our minds as well, but the word toil means trouble, misery, problem, or predicament. Toil. The teacher is asking, what is there to gain in all of your troubles? In the midst of your predicament, what is it that you're actually achieving? What are you profiting? Because we all are insatiable creatures. Individuals and persons who are never truly satisfied. When have we actually had our fill, is what he's asking. It seems we never do. Never satisfied. Verses 7 and 8 say, All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. A powerful picture of the insatiability of human beings in particular. Never full. Never enough. John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money does it take to make a man happy? It's one of the richest mans in the history of our nation. How much money does it take for a man to be happy and content? Rockefeller responds by saying, just a little more. When is it that we have had enough adventures? When is it that we've traveled the world enough? We've seen enough sights, tried enough things, when is it that we have bought enough stuff? When is it that we've made enough friends? When is it that we've had enough sex? When is it that we have earned enough accomplishments, got enough degrees, read enough books, went on enough vacations, have enough followers, 
watched enough shows on Netflix or Hulu. Reruns of The Office over and over and over again. Reruns of Friends over and over and over again. Breaking Bad over and over and over again. Watched enough TikTok videos. When is it enough? Or a more challenging one, when have you made enough people happy? When have you loved enough people? What is the answer? We are haunted by Rockefellers just a little more. Haunted. And a life in the pursuit of pleasures, profit, power, and performance is like pouring water into a colander. Never fills. Never is full. It's life under the sun. Now for some Arcade Fire. Does anyone listen to Arcade Fire? Wow, okay, all right, cool. Not enough hipsters in here, anyway. In 2017, uh, this, this Canadian indie rock band, Arcade Fire, released a record entitled Everything Now, which, to go along with Evanescence and uh, Bring Me to Life, this record is a perfect side-by-side -side companion to the book of Ecclesiastes because it provides for us a social commentary on our moment with alternative ABBA vibes. We have everything, the record communicates, and nothing at the same time. More content than ever before, yet more discontent than ever before. One track says, looking for signs of life. Looking for signs of life but there's no signs of life, so we do it again. Funny enough, um, the record's cover is the picture of either a sunrise or a sunset. We're not totally sure, um, but it's interesting because it's both a real sunset and a sign, a man-made sign of a fake one. It's life under the sun. We find ourselves having access to everything, but nothing at the same time. A social commentator I listen to refers to this as the progress paradox, or the paradox of progress. We have it all and nothing at the same time. If you want to really dive into the themes of Ecclesiastes, go listen to Everything Now by Arcade Fire. Temporal creatures is what we are. Temporal. With never-ending eternal cravings for substance and satisfaction. Whether through pleasure, profit, performance, or power. Temporal creatures with never-ending eternal cravings. Everything in our hands Nothing in our grip. Having everything and nothing at the same time. So, if this is what life is like under the sun, it makes us beg the question, what lies beyond the sun? What lies beyond the sun? 
Now for some C.S. Lewis. He says, if I find myself, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. It's one of the greatest lines of Lewis in mere Christianity. And what the teacher is trying to reveal to us is that transcendent beings, which we are, seeking transcendent satisfaction, purely caged under the sun within time and reach, will lead to nihilism, madness, and suffocation. I love going into um, pediatric offices. So sterile. They try their best to make it cute and fun, but it is sterile. And on the ceiling, there are clouds. And there's a sun trying to mimic the earth. And yet, we're caged in a 10 by 10 sterile room. That picture is no different than the picture of life under the sun. And a life as transcendent beings seeking significance within this imminent world produces madness, nihilism, and suffocation. To put it more succinctly for you, and this is important for the whole teaching series, I do not think the primary theme of this book is that all things are futile and meaningless. But rather, the message of Ecclesiastes is this, the absurdity of life apart from God. Just think for a moment. What would your life be like if God is 100% removed? 100%. And the writer of Ecclesiastes seeks to kind of answer that question. The insanity of life apart from God. Ecclesiastes is what happens when we tear off the transcendent, like a piece of paper, leaving a fragment of what ought to be. Is there significance or meaning without transcendence? Can we produce meaning or significance on our own through technology or human ingenuity when we always seem to want more, just a little more? If we can, we continue to chase after the wind, it seems to me. Life void of the transcendent is utterly pointless and hollow. Like a party in a jail cell. And the teacher is saying, you can have it all. You can do it all. You can experience it all. But life absent of God is in a cage you weren't made to live in. Like building a home out of a hotel room. And hotel rooms are nice. They're plush. At least some of them, depending on where you stay but it's like building a home on the road out of a hotel room. You're not made for that. Anyone ever stayed longer than like a week in a hotel room and it drives you mad? 
life under the sun. Caged in a jail cell with pillows all around, but yet still enslaved. In 1882, Friedrich Nietzsche ushered in secularism as he announced poetically in the parable of the madman, God is dead. And all the fundamentalists and evangelicals freak out. Well, no, he's not. He most certainly is. God remains dead, and we have killed him. The quote-unquote madman in the story who's carrying a lantern to this village saying he seeks God, and all the village people say, oh, God's dead. He remains dead. We've killed him. Goes on to say, how shall we comfort ourselves? Murderers of all murderers. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last, look at this picture. At last, he threw his lantern on the ground. It broke into pieces and went out. Welcome to secularism. Life void of the transcendent. Light goes out. God is dead isn't so much a theological statement, in case you did not know. For those who think that it is, actually haven't read the parable of the madman. But it isn't so much a theological statement, but a sociological one, a cultural one. It represented the passing of a world grounded in the transcendent. Yet now, all that was was what was in front of us, what we could measure, what we could touch. This is life under the sun. What Charles Taylor, the philosopher, calls the imminent frame. The imminent frame. Boxed in life in a purely imminent world. Caging ourselves in from the transcendent. Boxed in on ourselves. And it might be cozy, as I mentioned, plush with pillows, bougie at best, but it's enslavement. And Ecclesiastes is written for people, hear this, who have their doubts about God, but can't stop thinking about him. And we see this cross pressure in our time today. Most clearly articulated by the British writer Julian Barnes, where he says this, he's agnostic or atheist, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Brilliant statement. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And the feeling ascribed to this kind of exclusively imminent vision or within is one of malaise. Malaise. Taylor calls it the malaise of imminence. Malaise means an uneasiness whose exact cause is difficult to identify. Have you ever felt malaise before? You're a little off. You feel sort of ill, but you, you know you're not sick. It just seems like something's off. You're not sure why. You woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It's malaise. Angst. Restlessness, in the language of St. Augustine. Or as the teacher puts it in verse 8, wearisome beyond description. 
I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I have my doubts, but I long for the transcendent. In the late 19th century, a little over a decade after Nietzsche's proclamation, Edward Munich painted his iconic, iconic painting called The Scream. Anybody familiar with The Scream, the painting? It has lived on to be one of the most well-known and celebrated art pieces of all time, recently breaking the most expensive piece of art sold at auction at um, Sotheby's in New York City, and it actually sold for $120 million. One art critic says it's more famous than the Mona Lisa. It's been used in pop art since its actual production in the early 19th century, late eight early 19th century and late uh, 1800s or so. Sorry, 1893, I think is when it was, 1895. Um, and it has become so iconic. Andy Warhol um, used it in a lot of his pop art. Actually, the movie Scream and the Ghost Mask was uh, built off of this painting. Kevin McAllister in Home Alone with his, you know, ah, face. Um, that's from Munich's painting. And it's become deeply iconic and connected to the human experience and condition. And here's what Munich said in a poem connected to this painting when he painted it in the late 19th century. He said, I was walking along a path with two friends. The sun was setting suddenly. The sky turned blue, or sky turned blood red. I paused, feeling exhausted, and leaned on the fence. There was blood and tongues of fire above, the blue, black ford, and the city. My friends walked on, and I stood there trembling with anxiety. And I sensed an infinite scream passing through nature. Munich himself described the scream as an icon or an image for a godless age. Life under the sun. Void of the transcendent. This is the picture of what it means for us to seek significance purely in an imminent world. Hevel. Meaningless, futile, fleeting, here today, gone tomorrow, nihilistic, meaningless, life under the sun. But do you know why people drive hours to the Blue Ridge Mountains to see leaves die? In watching something so imminent, it actually prompts the deep-seated hunger and hope for transcendence. A taste of the more than beauty. Here's the teaser. There is something in someone beyond the sun who subjected himself to life below the sun. To that end, here are three questions I leave you with today to ponder and reflect on. What is the point of life? What is the aim of life? What is life all about? The second question is the question, what is worth wanting? Not what do you want? But what is worth your wanting? And is that 
worth it? The third question is, am I really living? Am I really living? Now, I know it felt like a brain dump <laughs> as we launch into this teaching series on Ecclesiastes. But I find it to be deeply pertinent for our time to wrestle with such questions of futility, vanity, pursuits, meaning, time, pleasure, profit, weariness, exhaustion. Because many of us coming out of our cultural milieu find ourselves trying to make a home out of a hotel room. And we long for more than. We're like the cavemen in Plato's allegory of the cave, looking at shadows, thinking that they're the real thing. But there's more than. And some of us have been beckoned to step outside of the cave. I'm going to take time to come to the table this morning.